get serious about it. Well, I didn't have to worry about that. We became fast friends, and we've been friends ever since, and we're so glad that he's with us. Uh, Larry is here with his wife, Larissa, with uh, their son, Christian, and then Haley and Myra are with them, their two daughters. Now, they have a son, Tyler, that is in uh, his junior year at Louisiana Tech, and so he is... uh, He's not with them. Now, Larry is from Louisiana originally, and do not hold that against him. He is uh, an LSU fan, but his wife's trying to uh, show him the error of his way, and uh, she is a faithful Tennessee fan, so we're, we're glad about that. Larry's been preaching for a long time. He's been preaching since before he ever went to school, and he, uh, uh, he spent eight years in the Marine Corps, and so... Uh, Unless you really know him or get to know him, he is, uh, uh, you find out soon that he is a compassionate evangelist who cares for the souls of people. He has served congregations in Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama. He just recently moved to North Carolina over to the Cary Church of Christ in Cary, North Carolina to serve and work with that congregation, and they're fortunate to have him. And uh, I count Larry among uh, my best of friends and uh, upon someone that we can count on if we need to. And we appreciate him and his good wife and their family coming and being with us. So we look forward to his holding our meeting for us uh, through Wednesday. And uh, brother, come and speak to us. and I love Nicole and his family. Um, certainly they are dear friends to us. Uh, I know that you're privileged and, and honored to have Rick here. Um, I don't think, I know another gospel preacher that works as hard as Rick does. Uh, he will drive himself into the ground because he loves people and he loves souls. And So you're definitely blessed to have he and his family here. And I appreciate you being here today. Uh, I'm looking forward to a wonderful week, a great gospel meeting. Uh, but I have an assignment for you this week. Uh, Don't worry, there's no test or anything, but my assignment for you is is to invite one person to come with you this week, just one. Uh, You know, each one reach one, so to speak, and if you'll reach out to one person, tell them about that man that died on a cross for you, tell them that you want them to hear the gospel because you love them, Uh, that'll certainly not only encourage the congregation here, but encourage you and certainly share a wonderful message with them, and that's what we want to do this week. We're looking forward to a great uh, meeting this week, and thank you for the invitation. Glad that my family could be here with us. And I want to thank you all for your kind words of encouragement before. Uh, so many uh, wonderful, nice words, but one of the things I have learned is that the brethren will keep you humble. Uh, I was speaking in a, uh, a gospel meeting uh, several years ago up in northwest Tennessee and speaking with one of the elders afterwards, and we were talking about the Marine Corps. And I finally asked him, he told me he was in World War II, he was in the island hopping campaign, and I finally said, man, I said, how old are you? I think he said he was 86 or 87. I said, I sure hope I look that good when I'm your age. He said, son, you don't look that good now. (laughs) So the brethren will certainly keep you humble. They will not let your head get too big. Uh, But thank you uh, again for this this wonderful opportunity. Do you ever feel um, as a Christian that maybe sometimes you still have an uncertainty about your eternity? Um. I heard somebody say just a few weeks ago, we had our meeting last week at Cary, uh, but the week before that, somebody had made the statement uh, concerning eternity, and they said, I sure hope I'm going to heaven. 
And to me, as a Christian, not just a gospel preacher, but as a Christian, that bothers me. Because I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that we should know where we're going to spend eternity. If we have any doubts, if we have any concerns, then those doubts and those concerns need to be addressed accordingly. But the great thing is the Bible tells us in 1 John that we can know that we are saved. We can know that we're going, where we're going to spend eternity. Brother Andrew Conley, a great gospel preacher, he was a big, tall man like me. He used to say, I know that I know that I know that I know that I'm saved. Because we can be assured of our eternity in heaven if we trust and have a strong faith in who God is and what God does for us as His children. When you look at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, Paul asked a series of rhetorical questions, which this morning I titled our sermon, Three Questions with One Answer. And what is that one answer that we want to find out this morning as we look at Romans chapter 8? And when we think about this, the Bible tells us in a number of places that we who have obeyed the gospel can know where we will spend eternity. But let me preface the sermon with this question this morning. If the Lord were to return right now, would you beyond of a shadow of a doubt go and be with Him in eternity? If you cannot answer that question with the affirmative yes and being confident in that, then there's something wrong with your faith. A faith that needs to be addressed, a faith perhaps that needs to be fixed today. But I think when we look at what Paul's writing here to the church at Rome concerning these rhetorical questions and trying to encourage them to look to the Father that nothing can go against us as His children, that we can have confidence in who God is and what Jesus did for us at Calvary, that we can answer these questions this morning with the affirmative and being positive in that question. So the question I want to ask first this morning is, who can oppose us? Notice what Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 31 and 32. Paul says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall I not with him freely give us all things? When Paul asks the question, who can oppose us, he does not mean that we as Christians do not have enemies. We do have enemies, don't we? As soon as you walk out these doors, you face the world. The world is our enemy. The devil's not trying to get into the world. The devil's trying to get into the church and knock the church down because this is where the saved are. But when we think about those that are opposing our efforts to live for Christ, I'm sure that you could name those that are trying to stop your race with Christianity. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a co-worker. Whatever the case is, there's probably somebody on your list that doesn't want you to be saved, that's trying to, that's trying to stop your trip to heaven. But the Bible tells us that we could rest assured and know that we don't have to worry about those things. We can have a confidence and a faith in what God has told us through His Word based upon the faith that we have in Him. But here's the thing, brethren, we're scared too often of what the world can do to us. Brethren, we don't need to be scared of the world. Because when you have God, our Creator, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega on our side, there's nothing for which we need to fear. And because we have God on our side and because we think about the two words that He often told His children throughout the Bible, two words were fear not. Well, you think about uh, how God had comforted Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 1. He said, fear not, Abraham, I am thy strength. And I, basically God was telling him, I'm with you. 
You think about when Moses was standing on the Red Sea as the Egyptians were pressing down upon the Israelite nation. And as they're complaining, Moses, get us out of this. Moses, you're the one who took us out of, out of Egypt while we were being fed and being taken care of. In essence, Moses told them to be quiet. In Exodus 14, 13, Moses said, Fear not and stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He shall surely show you today. Moses said, Stop complaining. Stop worrying about the situation that we're in because obviously their faith wasn't where it needed to be and God told them they had nothing for which they needed to fear. You think about what what David writes, the psalmist in Psalm 23 and verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley out of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. David understood the concept of what it meant to have faith and courage in his Lord because God was taking care of him. David didn't have anything for which he needed to fear. But so often is the case that we walk through this world scared. You think about the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 13 and verse 6. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not fear what the world can do to me. Brethren, if we're more afraid of the world than we are afraid of God, then we've got a heart problem. Because God is the one that will judge all on that day. We must all appear before the judgment seat to be judged by God. Yet the problem is that Christians many times are tormented by their enemies or their spouses or their co-workers or whatever the case is, and they allow that to dwindle their faith down to where it doesn't need to be. And what we're saying is that we lack faith in our Father that He might deliver us from all evil, right? How many times does God throughout the Bible encourage His people to look to Him? But many times it really goes back to our faith and not facing the problems. Brethren, let me tell you this. Your faith will not fix what you won't face. And if you won't face it with God on your side, your faith is never going to fix it. Our faith has to be rock solid on the cornerstone and the head of Jesus Christ who is the church. And when we put our confidence in that and knowing who Christ is and what He did for us, and when we keep our eyes on the cross of Calvary, brethren, there's nothing for which we need to fear in this world. Let me ask you for just a few moments this morning to take your eyes off your pot roast, to take your eyes off what you're going to eat after after church today, to take your eyes off the bills you need to pay or the problems that you might be facing in this world. Whatever it is, I want you to completely forget about those right now. And I want you to focus your eyes on the cross of Calvary. And I want you to think as they illegally drug Jesus before these different trials and councils to accuse Him, Jesus simply said nothing, right? Keep your eyes on the cross. And as they then drug Him before the the before Pontius Pilate, before the perfecter of Rome, as He's standing in His judgment court and asking the crowd, what can I do with this man? I find no guilt in him. Keep your eyes on the cross. And as they wanted a murderer to be granted unto them in Barabbas, rather than than setting Jesus Christ free, keep your eyes on the cross. And then as Pontius Pilate said, you know what? My hands are clean and done with this man. And as they drug him off, and as they ripped off his clothing, and as they literally removed the skin off his back and beat him and scourged him, keep your eyes on the cross. And as he stood there and took that pain, and as they did nothing but cry for his name because they didn't like him very much, keep your eyes on the cross. And then finally, as they threw him out in the street and threw a cross on his back and told him to bear the weight of the world, keep your eyes on the cross. And as he struggled up that hill, and finally they pulled Simon Cyrene out of the crowd to help him a little bit because he could no longer tolerate the weight himself, Because he was beaten, he was bruised, and he was battered all for mankind. Keep your eye on the cross. And as they drug him up that hill to Golgotha, the place of the skull where he knew he would die, 
And as they laid him on that cross, and as they stretched his arms and his legs out, and as they put that nail through his precious body, keep your eye on the cross. And as they finally picked up that cross and put him in the ground, as he was between two thieves suspended between heaven and earth, brethren, answer this question. Do you think that God loves you and there's anything for which you need to fear in this world? God said no to His Son that He could say yes to us at Calvary. And there's nothing that we need to fear. Paul said, if God be for us as His children, those that are found faithful, there's nothing we need to be afraid of. You know, oftentimes, unfortunately, we have individuals who are being killed overseas because of ISIS and these other terrorists. And I see these videos on TV. I, I can't bring myself to watch the full videos, but what they show on the news. And I think to myself, if I were in their situation, would I be at peace? Because if I can't be at peace in that moment, knowing that God is going to take care of me, and knowing that God is with me and not against me, then brethren, I don't truly trust in who my Lord and Savior is. It's a hard question to ask, isn't it? When I was in the military, one of the things they used to you know, tell us all the time, you really don't know what type of Marine you are until you get into battle. You really don't know what type of person you'll be concerning how you're going to defend those that are around you until you get into battle. I got out just a few months before September 11th happened. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I need to go back in. I was just a few months removed. I could have went right back in and renewed my contract. But I think since then, all those men and all those women who have died overseas for our blanket of freedom that we often take for granted, if they too were at peace when they died. Because if we can't say that we are, then we've got a faith problem. So who can oppose us? Second question, who can accuse us? Can Satan accuse us? There we go. What about Satan? Can Satan accuse us? I mean, after all, he is the accuser of men before God, seeking to uphold those judgments or all those things that we've done wrong on that day. As a matter of fact, this is how I picture it. You and I are standing before God on the day of judgment. And, and here's Satan standing on one side and Jesus standing on the other. And Satan is listing all the many sins and all the transgressions and all the imperfections of Larry Fife. But this is when Jesus intercedes as my mediator and says, uh-uh. No, sir. He's not guilty. Because I died on the cross of Calvary, because his sins had been forgiven, no, Father, he's not guilty. That's how I picture my judgment day. Why? Because nobody can accuse us. Not even the devil can accuse us. I can imagine how Paul is telling us and how I imagine it with Satan is basically Paul is saying that even Satan himself can't stand before us on the day of judgment and try and preach us into hell exactly what he wants to do. Okay, so can Satan accuse us? No. What about God? Can God accuse us? Notice again Romans eight thirty three and 34. Paul writes, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So, if God has justified us, has forgiven us, and is treating us as if we had never sinned, just if I had never sinned, that's what justification means, then God won't accuse us. What about our enemies? Certainly we have many in the world who want to stop our, 
our forward progress of marching for Christ and who wants to stop our effort for Christianity? You think about Hollywood and the homosexuals and every other idea out there that wants to abolish everything that Christianity stands for, yet can they oppose us? No. Well, what about Jesus Christ himself then? Can Jesus accuse us? The only one who has the right to condemn anybody is Jesus Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for those things that we have done, whether they be good or bad. Everybody has a day in which they will stand in judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die, as Paul said, then the judgment. There's not any way that we're going to get out of that day. But the question is, are you ready for that day? Because if we can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are, brethren, we've got a faith problem. So nobody can accuse us. Not even Christ will accuse us because He has appointed unto a day in which all men must appear before the judgment seat of righteousness. The only person that Christ is going to condemn is those that reject Him. How do we reject Him? You know, even Christians can reject Christ. If we reject Him by the way that we're living, yet professing to be Christians, what do we call that in the Bible? A hypocrite. I'm professing and showing my cloak of Christianity on Sunday morning, yet I'm not acting like a Christian. A few weeks ago, and Rick and I were talking about this yesterday, a few weeks ago at Cary, I preached a sermon because I was seeing a need for individuals that were broken, that were afraid to bring their problems to church because they felt they had to be perfect. Brethren, raise your hand if you're perfect. Nobody? Not even the Tennessee fans? There's not a person in this audience nor on this earth that is perfect. But yet what we need to remember concerning what Christ did for us is that this is a hospital for sinners. Even Jesus said as He sat down with those sinners, He said, I didn't call, come to heal those who are, what, healthy? Being the great physician, He said, only those who are sick and are in need of a physician, those are the ones He came to minister to. So I shouldn't have to put on my fake cloak of Christianity and play the hypocrite on Sunday morning when I'm broken spiritually, brethren. Because this is the place I should be able to come and feel the most comfortable. But we allow the world to dictate who we think we need to be and who we think we need to project that we need to be. But we need to be Christians who sometimes stumble and make mistakes. And nobody's going to accuse us, and certainly nobody's going to oppose us if we're standing for God. Question number three. And this is an important question for us to consider. Who can separate us? It's interesting when you look at verse 35 through the end of the chapter. It's interesting that Paul says who rather than what. Especially when you look at the list, it seems that Paul is implying that most of the troubles that people face in life are problems they created themselves. Imagine that. Usually the problems we have to face with our faith are our own doings. That's why I say your faith can't fix what you won't face. Because many times people have this misconception or this misguided idea that because I'm a Christian, I can simply wash my hands and God's going to take care of it all. Yes, He will if I put them into His hands, but He's going to give me the tool to fix them. I know the Bible says something about those who won't work, don't eat, right? It's the same idea with our problems. We have to be willing to face the problems head on to fix them because we have God standing in our corner that will help us fix them. I always think about, you go back to Daniel chapter 
uh, 3, I believe it is, when the fiery furnace, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were about to go in the fiery furnace, you notice that God didn't take them out of the fire, but He helped them go through the fire? That is, He helped them through the troubles and the trials of that situation, just as He helps us through the troubles and the trials of our life? So is anybody going to separate us? No. Look at what Paul writes in 35 through 39. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He says, that as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. I always find that verse very interesting. That's the way the world looks at us, as sheep simply to be slaughtered that mean absolutely nothing. But notice the next verse. Paul says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Brethren, nobody can take you away from the grip of God's faithful hand. The only person that can separate us from God is ourselves. That is, if we turn our back on God, there's the story I always remember of the, the couple that's celebrating their 50th anniversary. And the husband says, Honey, let's take out the old 55 Ford pickup truck and let's go for a drive. She says, Oh, that'll be wonderful. We hadn't done that since we were teenagers in our early 20s. We haven't been able to do that. So as they got in the truck and she slid all the way over and sat right next to him, she said, This is so nice to sit next to you again. He said, Honey, I never moved. We're the ones who move away from God. We're the ones who turn our back on our Father in heaven. God doesn't turn our back, His back on us. Though He doesn't want to be or see sin, God doesn't throw us to the wolves and forget about us. He always offers a way for us to escape, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Doesn't mean that we're not going to face trials and struggles or whatever the case is. You see, when tragedy comes into our life, it does that mean that God has left us or forsaken us. And sometimes I know it's easy for us to feel that way. It is. But God is always there. God has always been there, and He will always continue to be there. The thing I think we need to, to press upon people is the Bible does not promise a life without trouble. Because if it did, too many people would become Christians for the wrong reason, right? We obey God because we love God. We put on His Christ in baptism because we love Jesus and what He did for us. We don't do it because God promises a bed of roses and everything is going to be peachy from this point on. I still remember the day I got baptized. I was 13 years old and Brother Burleson said, it gets difficult now because the devil's going to come at you with everything he has now to get you in his grasp. Like we said in Bible class, the devil's that roaring lion walking about, right? So let me ask you this question now. Who can oppose us? Who can accuse us? And who can separate us? Can you answer that question this morning? So what's the answer to that question? No one. Nobody can separate us from God. Nobody can accuse us. And nobody's going to take us out of His grasp except us. So where do you stand this morning? How is your faith and do you need the great physician? If you're a faithful child of God who has confessed your belief in Christ... You repented of your sins. You put on Christ in baptism. Brethren, there's nobody that's going to take you away from God's hands. Nobody. Only we can separate ourselves. 
So I want to ask you this morning, if you've turned your back on Him and walked away like the prodigal, I always find it interesting that the prodigal, it says that He came to Himself. The light bulb came on. This isn't where I want to be and this isn't where I want to live. He was deep in the muck and mire of sin. And brethren, maybe you've been at that point where you didn't think you could get any lower, but what finally happened was is that he looked up and remembered who was watching. If you need to get out of that sin, if you need to get back on that path of righteousness, let us help you with that this morning. Let us pray with you. We want to pray for you. We want to embrace you. But you know what? When you leave today, you can pillow your head tonight knowing that you're okay with God. And maybe it is the case that you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Do you have an excuse that you think would be fitting on the day of judgment that would allow you into eternity because you didn't appreciate what Jesus did? Or maybe it is, which is the case many times, we're simply scared. And that's okay. We were all there. That's a difficult walk to say, I can't live the way I used to anymore because it's not about me. And we have to be willing to say exactly what Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So are you willing to give yourself to God this morning? To give Him everything that you have, including who you are as a person, to put away the old man, to bury Him as talks about in Romans 6, 3 and 4. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess Jesus as your Savior, Matthew 10, 32. And put on Christ in in baptism, Acts 22, 16. Just as Saul was asked, Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord, as together we stand and as we sing.